0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, open up, please, to Second Samuel. We are going to be looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10 today. Second Samuel, chapters 8, 9, and 10. I pray you are well this morning. I pray that you're here in order to worship God rightly through song and prayer, the proclamation of the gospel, the word of God going out. That is what we are going to do this morning, none of us can do anything that is profitable for the kingdom apart from the Holy Spirit, I cannot preach to you apart from the Holy Spirit, you cannot hear apart from the Holy Spirit, so we will ask God this morning to intervene in that way, that he might use a sinner like me and a foul tongue like I have to bring his word forth and he might use a sinner like you and your ears to actually hear what God has to say this morning, we might use our minds and we might think, we might have hearts that will receive Uh, What appears to be, I think, a very difficult teaching, and you may disagree, we can talk about that afterwards. The title of the sermon is Death and Grace. It doesn't get much more direct than that. In fact, the three points of the sermon are death, grace, and our our responsibility to both. Death, grace, and how do we respond to it? If you've been here for the past few weeks, then you know where we are in this storyline, in this narrative of God. As we finish up chapter 7, the kingdom of God that is being revealed through David it has physical form. And so we have the city of Jerusalem, now the city of David, will become the city of Zion. We have David now ruling as king in this city. The Ark of the Covenant has made its way into the city, so the representation of God's presence is amongst his people. We have um, the, the country is at peace, and as we saw last week in chapter 7, that covenant that God made with Abraham has been reaffirmed with David And that's been been addressed to the people. And so there is this visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth in the kingdom of David. And and so we would expect now for uh, a movement of that kingdom in some fashion. And that's exactly what we see here. We see actually two things taking place in chapters 8, 9, and 10. We see death and we see grace. We see death and we see grace. And what we have here is an historical record, it is an, it's a report, and it's good history. And so we want to look at that. But it's more than just a report, it's also prophecy. And so we have God both talking to us in the past, saying, this is how I am with mankind, and giving us prophecy of this is how I will be with mankind. And we're going to see that play out by God's grace this morning as we look at these three chapters. You know, as we come upon April and tax season. You've probably all heard the old adage, there are only two things certain in life. They are death and taxes. Well, that's not true. That statement's partially true. Um, I'd like to rework that a little bit. I would say that there are only two certainties at the end of this life. One is death and the other is grace. Death and grace. And so let's look at that this morning. Let's look at death. Let's look at grace And let's look at our responsibility as God's children on how we respond to both. What are we supposed to do with these teachings? First, death. So with David now firmly established as king, he begins to properly deal, as a king would with his country, he begins to deal with all the enemies of God. David is God's anointed. God's presence is represented in Jerusalem. Israel is now God's people. And how do we deal with the enemies? How does God deal with the enemies? Look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 1. He says, After this, after being established king and the covenants being affirmed, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took mithag Amma, that's likely Gath, which is one of the five city states in um, in the area of the Philistines, Methag out of the hand of the Philistines. So David defeats his enemies to the west. Conquers them entirely. Look at verse 2. He defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. The Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. So he defeats his enemies. God defeats through David his enemies to the south. Look at verse 3. David also defeated Hadadizar, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river of the Euphrates. So David defeats his enemies to the north. You're getting the theme here? Look at verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadizazar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. So he defeats the enemies, the, the allies of his enemies to the north. Verse 13. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites. In the Valley of Salt, he conquers the remaining enemies to the south. And then you don't need to turn there. We'll be there in a minute. In chapter 10, we are told this. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab, and all the host of the mighty men, and he defeated that enemy too. So he conquers all the enemies to the east. And so you have a good portion of these passages dealt with David's victory: north, south, east, and west. And the question has to be: why would God spend so much time in his word? in talking about redemptive history, why would he spend so much time talking about these battles? How David goes out to the north or the south or the east or the west and he defeats these enemies of God and God's people. Why in the narrative is this important? Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. The latter part of verse 6, it says, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Now the author of 2 Samuel felt it imperative to rewrite that again at the end of verse 14. Look down a little bit. It says, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So what do we have here established in the historical record of God's book? What is made plain here in the narrative of God's redemptive history is that God goes before his anointed and he defeats his enemies. Not David's enemies, but God's enemies. Subduing them on every side. And I don't know that we would pick this up unless we said, no, wait a minute. If you look at a map, north, south, east, west, on every side, every enemy of God, all around Jerusalem, all around God's people, are systematically defeated by David, by God. You say, well, why is this here? Because as mankind listens to this movement in recorded history, it should cause all of us to pause, I believe, with bated breath. It was recorded in the book that we might see God's fidelity to Abraham. It was recorded that we might know that God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a people and he would seat a king and that that king would bring blessings to God's people and death to God's enemies. That he would indeed, God, through his people and through his anointed one, he would bless his own and he would destroy those who rebel against him. One of the key words used throughout this passage in the Hebrew, it's Naka. It's naka, and it means to smite or to strike dead." And if there's one thing you get when you finish Second Samuel chapter eight or Second Samuel chapter 10, one of the things that is clear is that no enemy of God, no force, no power, no nation, no person, no king, no leader, can stand up against this holy God that the end for that person or that nation or that people will be death if they so choose. And what we see is that the one that God anoints, in this particular case, David, in the future we know it will be Christ, that victory will be had, that victory is guaranteed. Victory wherever he went, wherever David went, there was victory, north, south, east, and west. It was complete and it was total, so much so that even the possessions of those who were killed were taken and dedicated to God. Look at verse ten. Verse ten it says, "And Joam the son of Toy, king of Hamath, brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze, brought them to King David. And these also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he had subdued. In other words, they brought all the plunder and all that they had brought from their enemies' camps, and they brought them to God and they gave it to God. Why? Because David was victorious because God was going before him. God was the one who was fighting the battle. God who was the one who was securing the victory. Now, many in the Western church, and not just the West, grievously so, reject this teaching of God's judgment and death coming to God's enemies. And yet, it is a foundational principle of the kingdom of God. In fact, it is a kingdom principle period, specifically with the kingdom of God. God says, I will bring glory to my name by blessing my people and destroying those who rebel against me. And that's how the story ends. That's how it plays out. What we don't want to accept in the West, we don't want to accept the simple truth, historically and prophetically, this. Listen closely. Conflict must necessarily precede conquest. Conflict must precede it. If, if Christ is going to, to, to reign as king over the heavens and the earth, then prior to that happening, there'll be conflict. There'll be conflict. In order for David and God's people to be secure, to have peace, and to reign as a nation, there was conflict. God's enemies had to be subdued. And the same holds true for the son of David, the greater David, Jesus Christ, and his people, the church in order for the, the church to be secure, in order for God to reign ultimately over the church, that means sin must be destroyed, hell must be destroyed, death must be destroyed for his people and God's enemies. God's enemies. The Bible clearly teaches, and history has proven, our own hearts testify to this, that sinful man does not want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior sinful man does not want to receive Christ as king sinful man does not want to receive the kingdom of God now and so what do we do we resist with all our might with every fiber of our being and if you know Christ as Lord and Savior then you knew what it was like before you submitted your life to him and you hated God you hated Christ you certainly hated the church if you had any sense of what was going on I know I did and that means that in order for God's reign to rule on earth with Christ as king, there will be conflict. There will be battles. And there will be death. There will be salvation for some and death for others. The kingdom of heaven will not just enter by popular demand. We're not going to send out a Gallup poll and find out that all people throughout the world said, yes, we love God, we praise Christ, we want him as king, kingdom come. The history of fallen man will not simply evolve into the kingdom of God. It won't happen peaceably over time. It will take place by force and by the might of God himself. I like it in Luke when it says the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Was it not through the horrific death of Jesus Christ on the cross that the power of sin and death were overcome, that the enemies of God were mocked before him? You say, wait a minute, I thought that they mocked Christ. Malcolm Muggeridge said this beautifully in his book. He said, the cross of Christ is the sublime mockery of all earthly authority and power, the consummate mockery. The crown of thorns, the purple robe were intended to mock Jesus. Jesus but they, in fact, hold up to ridicule all crowns, all robes, all kings that ever were. And we know that to be true. Is it not by dying to ourselves and putting to death the old you, the enemy of God, that God makes you alive in Christ? Is it not through the daily putting to death of our own sins that God makes us holy as Christ is holy? And just like David, God promises that through Christ he will put to death all those who refuse the lordship and salvation of Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and King. He will put them to death. That is a certain thing according to the word of God. In fact, the second psalm, for those of you who have read through the psalms, the second psalm is talking about this very thing. Listen, verse 7, Psalm 2. I will tell you of the decree, the Lord said. You are my son, talking of Christ. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is a terrifying verse. If it's not true, then we can all go out and head down the street to IHOP and have some pancakes. If it is true then we need to listen closely to what God is saying. Some will hear that, Psalm 2, and they'll say, that's, that's the old God, we, we've heard about that God in the Old Testament, but that's not the God of the New Testament. And then you get to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, And the Apostle Paul says, this will happen. All these things mentioned in Psalm 2. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and with his powerful angels. Why is he coming in blazing fire? And why with powerful angels? Verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There are a lot of things that are difficult in the Scriptures to discern at times. Mysterious things. Subtle things. This is not one. This is not one. Every effort to extinguish God, His Son, His Church, His reign, every nation that rises up against Christ, every heart that refuses to believe and submit and obey Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, everyone without exception will fail in their rebellion. God will be victorious and the result will be, in the end, death on a cataclysmic scale. And some of you may be saying, this sounds so extreme. It sounds, it sounds like something that you know, we hear in stories or we see now in movies all the time because every movie's cataclysmic. But this is what the Bible says about the end. This will be the end. And this is the side of the gospel that we as, as Bible-believing, gospel-centered, evangelical Christians cannot be afraid to talk about. We can't be afraid to preach it. This side of the gospel that talks about real judgment and real death and real eternity in a real hell for lots of people. You know, in the Western church and in the Western culture, we want want peace at the expense of righteousness. We want peace. We don't want righteousness to be a part of it. We want unity without God's law. And we want community without cleansing. And so we change the gospel to tickle ears and fill seats. We preach and we teach partial truths. And these partial truths, they're received well by the culture and they're received well by the unsaved sitting in churches this very day. It's easy to hear a partial truth. It's easy to hear that God is full of grace and love and mercy and everything's going to be all right. No matter who you are, no matter what your profession of faith is, no matter whether or not you even believe in Jesus Christ, that's an easy message. That'll fill churches. That'll please a culture. But it's a lie. We must remember what Paul said. I mentioned this verse last week. I want you to go back. Go back and look, not right now, in your studies this week. Read and study 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It is a most intriguing passage. I think every single pastor or teacher of the word of God should have this memorized and believe it with all their heart because they would preach differently. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 he says, "For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ, we the church. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing." Saved and unsaved, we're an aroma. And then he clarifies in verse 16, to the one, we are an aroma that brings life. To the saved, we're an aroma that brings life. And he says, to the other, an aroma that brings death. In other words, the gospel has to be complete. It can't be partial. If we're going to be the aroma of Christ, that aroma must both bring forth the judgment of God, the holiness of God, and the grace and mercy of God as well. Must have both. Both. The Lord sifts men and women by his word. He sifts. It's why we must do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.13. To not tire of what is doing right. Preaching, teaching, and living in accordance with the full gospel. The full gospel. Our lives daily. Our teaching to this, to our friends and family and co-workers. So overlooked is something like this simple understanding of the holiness of God, that in the public teaching and proclamation of the Word of God, even in Reformed churches in our own area, that we have failed to be an aroma of death to those who are perishing. And some will say, "Oh, that's good. We don't want to be an aroma of death to anybody. We want, we want people to, to hear of God's grace and mercy and love, and that's it. And that would be great if that were it. But not everybody ends like that. It isn't a, it isn't a Disneyland they lived happily ever after for every soul born of Adam. You know this. Second Samuel chapter eight and ten are written as history and prophecy. It's history and prophecy. So I don't see it as prophetic. What God did through David in establishing the kingdom of Israel at that time, God is now doing in the kingdom of Christ and will ultimately do in the kingdom of Christ when the end comes. separating. If we're going to be faithful to the word of God, In the preaching and teaching and living in accordance with the gospel of grace, if we are going to do that, then we must include God's judgment upon those who refuse Christ. We must. We must. It is the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word in total, death and grace, not just grace, death and grace, that will rightly separate the saved from the lost. The kingdom of Christ is preached truthfully and instead we embrace a liberal, all-inclusive, come as you are, stay as you are, no law, no repentance, no submission, no need for recognition of God, no need for recognition of Christ. If we preach and teach that, or worse yet, we actually preach orthodoxy. We preach truth. But we do it in such a way that we demean the parts that we don't like to hear We sugarcoat it. We downplay it. We manipulate it. Then we become agents of deception as well. And many will be utterly shocked when they come before the living God and they hear him say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I do not know you. And the church will be culpable for that. Pastors will be culpable for that. To the degree that we forsake the full gospel of grace, death and grace, many will be deceived on that day. I fear many sitting in the churches throughout the world this very day will be deceived. We must preach a crucified, risen king who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We must preach this king who will come and save his children and he will put to death every enemy of God. We must preach that. We must believe it with our hearts. that's what the Bible says. And we, we know that that must be the case. If God is holy and God is king and God is judge, he's not going to have his enemies perpetuate for all eternity. That doesn't even make sense in an earthly context, let alone an eternal context. So first I pray that in looking at these war records, that we see it is a prophetic movement that God will judge his enemies. He will put to death eternally all those who refuse to acknowledge and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and King in this lifetime. Are you still with me? Okay. So let's talk about grace. Because there are two sides to this. For those of you who were who were here last year when we studied 1 Samuel, there was a covenant made between Samuel, between uh, David and Jonathan, a beautiful covenant. I'm gonna read it just briefly to you. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Jonathan, remember Jonathan is is Saul's son, and, and David and he loved one another. They were so close. 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning at verse 14, Jonathan says to David, he's making a covenant, he says, if I'm still alive, remember he's going to go back and and see what his dad's thoughts are on David. Dangerous. He said, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, David. When, when God goes before you and he destroys his enemies through you, do not forsake my family. Do not forsake my lineage. It was a covenant, a glorious covenant. It was that, remember the covenant, the Hasid we talked about? That is a, a willful entering into a covenant with another person to love that person, to stay the course with that person. And it's bound by, by certain promises, just like, like, like a marriage would be promises in that covenant, committed to the covenant. So in this particular case, David is promising Jonathan that he will, he will treat Jonathan's family well, that he won't put them to death. Now, 15, 20 years later, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David has an opportunity to act upon that covenant made. And covenants are, are, are fulfilled in their being acted out, lived out. Look at verses, uh, if you're in chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9, look at verses 3 through 6 with me. The king said, is there not, this is David now talking, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba, a servant from the house of Saul, Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Emile, at Lodibar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Now, if you remember, we were, we were first introduced to Jonathan's son. Do you remember who he was in 2 Samuel chapter 4? Mephibosheth, that's a great name, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Imagine what that poor kid had to go through in school, Mephibosheth. We know him because he was fleeing the city at the time that they found out that both Jonathan and Saul had been killed in battle. And in their flight, he was five years old, and in his flight with his nurse, they were running out and he fell and he injured himself so badly that it rendered him crippled. Crippled for the rest of his life. And so David, out of his love for Jonathan, out of the covenant that he made with Jonathan, 15, 20 years prior, says, bring him to me, go get him and bring him to me. Look at verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. He said, Well, why would he be afraid? And what did, what did he do? That he should be afraid going before the king. Look at verse 6 again. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. The son of Saul. He comes before the king. The son of the rival regime. The son of the overthrown king. He comes before David with the bloodline of the previous king who tried to kill David. There's good reason for Mephibosheth to be afraid. In in the Middle East at that time... When a new king would come into power, it was customary for him to execute all the family members of the previous king. I have no doubt that when Mephibosheth received his summons to the house of David, he thought it was a summons of death. It makes sense. Was he in for a surprise? Look at verses 7 and 8. David said to him, Do not fear for i will show you kindness for the sake of your father jonathan and i will restore to you all the land of saul your father and you will eat at my table always and mephibosheth paid homage and said what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as i mephibosheth knows that he he has the wrong bloodline and he goes before david as a dead dog you see, that's a weird phrase. Dogs, for the Hebrews, were unclean animals. I think we kind of got some weird stuff going on with dogs here, but that's a whole other discussion. A dead dog was the lowest of low. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't abase yourself more lowly than a dead dog. And so he says, how is it that I come before you and you regard me? I am a dead dog. You know what Mephibosheth means? in the Hebrew, it means a shameful thing. And my first thought was, what were his parents thinking when they named him a shameful thing? So here you have Meth- Mephibosheth, his name means a shameful thing. He, coming, he comes before David as a dead dog, but David does not treat him as such. He doesn't treat him like a dead dog. He doesn't treat him as a shameful thing. He says, you will be like to me a son. L- look again, look at verse 7. He says, I, I'm going to protect you. Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Because of the covenant that David made with Jonathan, he says, "I'm going to show you kindness. I will protect you. Do not be afraid." He offers him protection and kindness. Look, he, keep going. He offers him provision. He says, "I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father." It wasn't uncommon for kings when they came into power to take the land and the inheritance of the previous king. And so it likely belonged to David at that time. And so David says, I'm going to give it all back. I'm going to give you everything back that, that your grandfather, Saul, owned. And so Meth- Mephibosheth went from likely as a crippled man, being dependent upon the care of others, he went from in a single day from poverty to riches. Because David was going to provide for him abundantly because of the covenant he made with Jonathan. So he provides a protection, provision. Look what else, though. Keep going in verse 7. He says, A position you shall eat at my table always, no longer groveling before the king, no longer hiding in fear. He says, You're going to be with me, and you're going to eat at my table. In other words, you're going to be part of my inner circle. To, To sit at the king's table, that's where dialogue took place. That's where politics happened, and so not only was not only was Mephibosheth given this protection and this provision, he was brought in all the way in, all the way in. Had David fulfilled his chesed, his covenant, he went way beyond. And the covenant he made with Jonathan essentially was, I won't kill your kids when I come into power. That was it. So if, if, if David said, I, I won't kill you, that would have been a fulfillment of the covenant. But look how extreme this is. Perfect, protection, kindness, restoration of his inheritance, a position, treating him like a son. Now, my beloved, you don't, know how, you don't have to know the gospel that well to read this story and say, this reeks of Christ. And us, with David, representing Christ, and you and me like mephibosheth it's an extraordinary old testament teaching that points right to the cross you say well how so mephibosheth he comes before the king with two life-threatening conditions one he's crippled this man was a prince who was rendered crippled and unable to care for himself let alone a kingdom So he comes lame. In fact, there's great emphasis in chapter 9 on how lame he is, how broken he is. He's a broken man coming before David. But secondly, and I think more importantly, he's the son of Saul. He's on the wrong side of this battle. His bloodline is poisoned. And so Mephibosheth goes before David, lame himself and from a sinful line. And here the text cannot cry out, any more fervently to the believer in Christ. Every believer, saved by grace, comes before Jesus Christ, the greater David, the son of David, exactly like this man. We come before Christ spiritually crippled by our own sin, made lame by our stumbling and falling daily in sin. We come, all of us, come before Christ as a methibosheth, as a shameful thing, our lying, our cheating, our adultery, our idolatry. We come before Christ like that. Paul, I don't think there's a better part in the New Testament that Paul gives the resume of fallen man better than in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 29, this is our resume. He says, we are, talking about all mankind, we are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does that not work? Before I came to a saving grace, that would have been my resume I sent off to IBM to get a job. We were made... By God to be princes and princesses as well, just like Mephibosheth. But we soiled, we polluted ourselves through and through. Paul said in Ephesians 2: He says, We were dead in our trespass and sins, by nature, children of wrath. So not only have we made a mess of our own lives, and anyone who's even semi-conscious will, will testify to that, the amount of sin that we brought into our lives and we've extended to others as well but we come before god as sons of adam which is worse than coming before david as a son of saul we come before god born in our sin on the wrong side of this bloodline at enmity with god at enmity with his son at enmity with the kingdom paul reminds us in romans chapter 5 verse 12 sin entered the world through the one mad adam and death through sin And in this way, death came to all people because, why? All have sinned. All have sinned. So just like David with Mephibosheth, instead of putting us to death, a death we freely deserved, a death we abundantly deserved for exercising sin in our own life, instead of Christ putting us to death for being children of Adam, for being born in sin, for being sown iniquity in our mother's womb, for those that are saved by grace, Paul tells us in Romans 5:10 that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. If you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you were saved when you were an enemy of God. You did not become a friend of God, and then he saved you, you're an enemy of God, and He saved you and made you a friend. In other words, Jesus Christ on the cross, he got what Mephibosheth rightly deserved. He got what we rightly deserve spiritual death, denied our father's inheritance, forsaken, forsaken as a son or daughter of God. That's what he received. Why? So that modern day Mephibosheth, like us, children of wrath, crippled descendants of Adam, shameful things, dead dogs, I love you, dead dogs. We're dead dogs when we come before Christ. Actually, we're even lower than that. In Christ, we are blessed with the protection and kindness of Christ as well. He brings us in. He says, now you're, you're my son. You're my daughter. I will protect you. I will provide for you. And how does he provide? He, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon us. He says, you were, you were made to inherit the earth. You were made to rule over angels one day. He brings protection. He brings provision. Christ does to us, those saved by grace. He he gives us a position. You you will not be a shameful thing and a dead dog in eternity. You're going to be a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You're going to sit with him. You're You're going to be at the table of the lamb, the wedding feast of the lamb forever, feasting Just like Mephibosheth at David's table, he said, He will eat at my table always. You will eat at the table of Christ forever. Instead of meeting the fate of God's enemies, judgment and death, Mephibosheth was spared. For all those who repent and put their faith in Christ, in the work of Christ, who repent and believe and truly follow Christ, will be spared and instead of death coming to you for eternity you'll be blessed with protection and provision and position in the kingdom of God because of Christ so first I pray we see that death is a very real result of Christ reigning as king and two I pray we see that grace is also a very real result of Christ reigning as king and so the, the question, the most compelling question, I think, for anybody, today, saved or unsaved? What do I do with these? I mean, if in the end there's death and there's grace, what do, what do we do with this? I mean, what do we take from it today? What is our role as believers in this? A few things, and then I'll close. First, I believe that we must be fully cognizant of our standing before this holy God, That we came before Christ because he called us in. We came before him as shameful things, as the chief of sinners. We came to him as sons of Adam in total rebellion. And if we had any sense, we came to him thinking, this summons must be a summons of death, because this is a holy God and I know my heart and it is deceitfully wicked. God must be calling me to kill me. That is a very reasonable thought, by the way. We must come to God as dead dogs and ask that He makes us alive. We must put our faith not in our ability to save ourselves out of our deadness, but in the faith of Christ and the work He accomplished on the cross to save us and make us alive. And then when you receive the protection of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ, when you have the provision of God saying, I will care for you now and for eternity, and when you, even now, the Bible says that even now we're seated at the right hand with God, that even now as you see yourself as a son or daughter, a prince or princess of this king, you take the the protection and the provision and the position and you receive it freely as a gift because you didn't earn it. And then you live as such. If if you're in Christ, then you're no longer a dead dog. You're born again. If you're in Christ, you're no longer a shameful thing. You're a glorious thing. Why? Because the blood of Christ has covered you. You say, I still got all this sin I'm dealing with. Yes, you do now in the flesh. But at some point in time, you will not. If we're in Christ, and you've been born again, By the power of the Holy Spirit. That means that you are called daily to feast at the table of the Lord. You say, well, where's the food? The food is the Bible. Eat from it daily. Feast on it. Gluttony is a sin with the exception of the word of God. Be as gluttonous as you want. We must live as those who are now redeemed. We must feed upon the word. We must commune with God in prayer. We must pursue holiness every day. Knowing who you are in Christ. Now if you're not in Christ, then you are still dead in your sins and your transgressions. But if you're in Christ, you've been made alive. So live like you're alive. So much time we still spend in the church today like we're still dead. So much time I spend weekly as though I'm still dead and not alive. You're a king. You're a prince or a princess in this kingdom. That means saints will daily crucify our sins. will confess them before God. We'll repent daily. We'll submit to him in all ways and in all things. We'll go to the word and we'll say, what saith the word of God? I want to align my life with that. We will live as he has called and equipped us to live as a holy people serving, ministering, evangelizing, discipling, praying, growing daily in Christ. This is the image the Bible gives us. He doesn't just save us and leave us. He saves us and He fills us. And so daily in our lives as individuals and collectively as a church, we are to be growing in the holiness and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge of God every day so that we, Camden Avenue, are different two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now than we are right now. How glorious it would be for someone to come today and then come back a year from now and say, wow, you're different as a church. Five years even more so. And I'm not talking about being bigger. I'm talking about fidelity to Christ. Being changed into His image. That's one thing we should get from this, I believe. Secondly, I I think that if all this is true then we, not just pastors or teachers of the Word, but we, the body of Christ, must preach, teach, and live in accordance with the full gospel. We've got to bring to our family and our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors, we must bring death and grace. We must bring both. We can't avoid the discussion of death. We, even Even the physical death, we don't talk about it much. Even when someone dies... We don't talk about death. And then after they're dead, we don't talk about their death. Do any of you in here think that you're not going to die a physical death at some point in time? I've done enough funeral services to know that's a lie. We've got to talk about this real problem of death. This real problem of eternal death. We've got to talk about it. It's hard to hear. It's hard to talk about, but we must. How many of those in your mission field, saints, because you're a missionary, how many in your mission field do not have any concept of dying, coming before a holy God, being judged, and cast into an eternity of hell? How many of, don't even think about that? It's a million miles away. How many will never hear of the hope they can have in Christ? We must talk about this death. We must talk about the full gospel. And that means we don't don't take the grace and we make it partial. We don't soften it up. We don't want to tickle ears. We're ambassadors of Christ. We must call people to repent and believe today. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Today is the day of salvation. God says he desires none to perish but all to come to everlasting life today. We must warn people. We've got to warn people to flee from the wrath that is to come, not to run to the east or the west or the north or the south, because we know that from from 2 Samuel 8, there's no safety there. All the enemies will be destroyed. We must tell people, do not run to your marriages or to your homes or to your job or to your, your savings account or to your retirement and seek salvation from the Lord. You will be put to death in those places if Christ is not your covering. we must tell them to flee to Christ because He is the only shelter. He's the only shelter. He's the only place. In Christ is the only place where God's enemies who have been redeemed by grace will not be condemned. It's the only place. We must call them to the cross. And have them take shelter under the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. Call them to the cross. Have them cast their eyes upon the crucified Christ. And tell them of the hope they can have in Him. Lastly. If we know Christ. And we know we've been saved from death. Then we must live daily with with gratitude and joy knowing that if you're here this morning and you know Christ you're here because of God period go to chapter 10 i want to show you something and then i will close go to chapter 10 chapter 10 is a nev- it's another record of of war and David's victory over the Ammonites. Not only the Ammonites, but the Syrian mercenaries who came down to help the Ammonites, who realized that was a bad idea. What we must remember in this chapter is how this battle begun. David, out of a gesture, a good faith gesture, extends a peace offering Condolences to a new king. Let let me read to you, beginning at verse 1 in 2 Samuel 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died. Do you remember who that king was? Nahash. You remember Nahash, don't you? After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyal, loyally with me. Now, if you remember Nahash, he was the king that went to, to gouge out the eyes of those in Jabesh-Gilead that Saul came to the rescue, remember? Some point in time, we don't, it's not in the Bible, but at some point in time, likely when David was on the run from Saul, Nahash was kind to him and cared for him. And so David comes here and he says, you know what? I'm going to extend Hanun, Nahash's son. I'm going to extend him peace. I'm going to, to go and... And offer him condolences for the death of his father. It's a peace offering. Look at verse 2. So David sent a delegation to console Hanan concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their Lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? That's a common deception, is it not, that we've seen? Look at verse 4. Hanan foolishly took their counsel. So Hanan took David's servants and he shaved, shaved off half their beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. So they took their beard, they shaved off half, which was shameful at the time. And they cut their robes off right here. So they sent them away ill-shaven and naked. Naked. The communication was clear. Hanan had no desire to have, her, to have a peaceful agreement with David or the kingdom of Israel. Now, what, what I found amazing here is that these two extensions of peace are side by side, chapter 9 and chapter 10. One extension of peace Given to Mephibosheth in chapter nine, the second extension of peace giving given to Hanun, and I believe that they're here in parallel fast in the scriptures to show us the different response to each, and they're dramatically different. In verse eight of chapter nine, when Mephibosheth comes before David, it says he says, "What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I?" He comes humble and broken before David. Hanun, the son of Nahash, when offered peace, does the exact opposite. He humiliates David by humiliating his servants. In other words, saying, i have no peace with you. I will continue to rebel against you. One led to life, Mephibosheth, the other led to death. Now, the compelling question is, why the different response? Why did, why did Mephibosheth respond one way and Hanun Another One is, is saved by the king and the other one is killed by the king. One answer. God's sovereign grace. God sovereignly electing that I will pour my grace out on Mephibosheth and I will not on Hanan. The Bible speaks of two callings, one universal and one... Are you still with me here? Come on, we're almost done. One universal and one effectual. The universal call goes out to the world, to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. This is the call that we are to take out. This is what we're to do as evangelists and missionaries. Paul said, Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands what? All people everywhere to repent goes out at the end of the earth. God commands people to repent. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So Hanan receives this universal call. David says, I want to have peace with you to show goodwill toward your father. Hanan says, I'll have none of it. He rejects the peace offering. So, too is the gospel of grace to go out to all mankind. But you need to know this. All mankind will reject the gospel of grace unless God calls upon that man or woman's heart. In order for someone to be saved by grace, they must be called by God by name. If you're still in chapter 9, look again. This is so incredible to me. King David sent, verse 5, 2 Samuel 9, 5. King David sent and brought Mephibosheth from the house of maker at Lodabar to Jerusalem. He called him into his throne room. Mephibosheth came to David and he fell on his face and he paid him homage. He bowed down to the king. He bowed down to the king. Like Mephibosheth, when God effectually calls you and he brings you into the throne room, just as we saw with Isaiah, when you gaze upon the holiness of God, you will fall down on your face, you will cry out for mercy, and by his grace he will save you. That's why Paul says that we, preachers of the gospel, must always preach a crucified, risen Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, listen closely, saints. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. In other words, the gospel goes out universal and everybody rejects it. But, he says, verse 24, To those who are called. To those God says, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. To those who are called both Jews and Greece, Christ, the power of God to save. In other words, the end for Mephibosheth and the end for Hanan were different because God chose so. God elected to choose so. According to Ephesians, before the foundations of the world, he chose this. You say, well then, Hanan shouldn't be blamed for his enmity with God. No. There's one thing that our works will accomplish, and that is our death. Hanan is responsible for his rebellion against God. Every man, woman, and child born of Adam is responsible for their willful rebellion against God, and therefore they work their own death. They work their own eternity. But by grace, by grace, those who repent and believe and are saved, who experience the protection and the provision and the position of being in Christ, they, you, I, we are products of God's pure, unmerited favor. His calling, His election, His love that He places on us. You know what that means? That means you're not saved because you're good looking. You're not saved because you're smart. You're not saved because of the family that you were raised in. You're not saved by your merit or your upbringing or your education or your bloodline. You're not saved because of your work ethic. And you're not saved because of your spirituality. And you're not saved, listen closely, you're not saved because of your free will. The Bible says that before Christ, you're dead in your sins and transgressions. And then he makes you alive. I don't think it's any more clear than in John chapter 1 when the apostle said this. He said to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become children of God, verse 13, he says, who were born how? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Born of God. The prophet Isaiah made this prophecy centuries before in Isaiah 65 when he said in verse 1 of Isaiah 65, God saying, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. My beloved, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, then Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, came to you and he called you by name. And if you're like me, he had to drag you into the throne room by the back of your neck. I went kicking and screaming for a year and a half. And he went, no, you're mine. And when I got in, and he showed me himself, like Mephibosheth, I bowed down and I worshipped him. If you know Christ, it's because he saved you by his effectual call. And if that's true, my beloved, if He saved you not because of your upbringing or your, 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 your intelligence or your education, but He saved you because He wants you, if you're in Him because He's so decided, then you should wake up every single day with extreme gratitude and joy and the deepest of deep desires. To serve him faithfully every moment of every day. Because we should be as Hanan. We should be like all the the tribes and the people that are enemies of God that were destroyed by God. We should be. But we're not. By grace. All right. This is what happens when we only preach once a week i got to get more places to preach. Listen, the reign of Christ is real. The reign of Christ is real. The death of those who continue to rebel against him is certain. It's certain. This is a time of grace. And that grace is made available to every man, woman, and child... And therefore we must go, and we must proclaim it, not a partial truth, not just the mercy and forgiveness, but the death and the judgment and the hell and the sin as well, and bring the whole gospel to bear upon man. Your mission field, my mission field. We must call them to repent and believe, because these two fundamental truths of death and grace are real, the real. So I I pray, my beloved, that we will be faithful with the whole gospel. That we'll be faithful in our mission field with the whole gospel. I pray that we will be an aroma of death to those who are perishing by bringing the gospel. I pray that we will be an aroma of life, the fragrance of Christ, by bringing the gospel. And I pray that he would do a mighty work here in this place through this beautiful little church that he would do a mighty work in this dark place in which we live. In the end, we know when all the distractions are taken away, when all the noise ceases, when all is said and done, truly when all is said and done and we come before God naked, there will be death or grace. Death or grace? Which one do you stand in now? And what hope will you bring to others? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we bring forth this truth you revealed it specifically in the Word of God. It certainly matches human history. Our own conscience testifies to these truths. You've written your Word upon the heart of every man, saved and unsaved. I ask that you'd be gracious with us this morning for those that do know you and have been saved by grace through the work of Christ. I ask that that grace would resonate so deeply in them deeply in us each and every day that we would live in accordance with your word, submitting to Christ as Lord, loving him, serving him, loving one another, serving one another, bringing the gospel to the world. I pray also, Father, for those who are here that do not know you, for those who will hear this message that do not know you, that they would see that apart from Christ if they continue in their rebellion and their sin that death will be their end and not just a physical death but an eternal death in hell where there's an everlasting fire where there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth where the smoke rises forever to heaven. I pray Lord for those who hear this that they would this very hour repent and believe that they too might have grace instead of death they might have life and Christ and the mercy and the grace and the love and the joy that comes with being with the Father forever. It's such a glorious message. It's such a glorious truth, and it is real, and we believe with all our might to be real. I ask that you would press it upon us hard. Let us not forget tomorrow morning when we go to work that death and grace are real. Let us not have our mouths closed when we come into the presence of friends and family that we do not know do not, We know they do not know you. And let us not remain silent but bring to them the death and grace that is real. Make us the fragrance of Christ. They either loved him or they hated him. I pray we would live like that. For the time is short and the hour is dark. And your return is imminent. We cannot do this on our own, Father. It is impossible. Even the thought of it is impossible. But we can do all things through you because you strengthen us. Give us this power this day. In Christ's name I pray that he might be glorified both now and forever. Amen.